It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, 50 years since the very first Pride March took place in London. I've been speaking to Peter Tatchell. He was there on the day and describes how well this become this amazing, enormous, actually quite commercial thing that happens in London there. Uh, we go right back to its uh, origins way back in uh, the summer of 1972. So that's coming up in just a moment. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and on a Thursday. It's Night at the Marriott. The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yeah, lovely to have you both here on a Thursday morning. James Marriott, how are you? I'm good. Good morning. Are you are you not in the studio because you're still recovering from the party two days ago? Yeah, I'm still still, still in bed with the with the with the terrible hangover, obviously. <laughs> party animal that I, I clearly am. Yeah, I, I didn't see you dancing, James. <laughs> I strongly, strongly resisted all attempts to make me dance. As uh, yeah, quite right too. Uh, India, how are you? Good morning, very well, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I tried to. Yes, James. James was very well behaved the other night. You won't be surprised to learn, India. Was he? Did he sit quietly with his with his with his double decker and his poetry book? <laughs> <laughs> he had a book in his pocket. He's the only. He had, a, he had a book in his pocket. It was for the tube. I had to have something to read on the way home. I'm not sure. I wasn't sure if it was like a, an actual book or if you just shop in the places where they like sew books into pot. Like, you know, like when you get a jumper and it's got a, like a collar attached. I would so buy that. That's an amazing idea. A sort of nerds, nerds outfitters where it comes, <laughs> it comes with Penguin Classics sewn into the pocket. Oh my God, stop. You're, you're tempting me now. I wish that shop existed. It's not a bad idea. It's a bad idea. We could get on get on Jagger's den with that. Uh, right, let's listen. Let's focus on proper serious politics now. Uh, what? Uh, let's just take a listen to what happened at PMQs yesterday. She talks about working people. She talks about working people. Oh, she talks about that's Dominic Raab winking there. The sound of a wink. Um, what? What? What to make of Dominic Raab's wink, India? I'm really intrigued by this wink. He claims he was winking at um, Ian Murray, the Scottish Secretary, Scotland Secretary, and I don't believe that for a second. He was clearly winking at Angela Rayner. I think, um, I think that the, the Tories are fascinated. It was Rishi Sunak's face was really interesting as well. Whenever Angela Rayner talks, Rishi Sunak looks kind of entranced, enchanted, and sort of slightly disbelieving. Yeah, how are you... Um, I how is this working? Ever... Sort of seems to go across his face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's clearly never met anybody like her. And Rob seemed sort of quite revved up, didn't he? But, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting, the wink. Either the wink is flirty, and I think there's definitely an element of that in there somewhere, or the wink is kind of friendly. It's saying, you know, we are... Here we are across the dispatch box, but I quite like you, and, you know, 
it's a bit of a laugh, maybe. I don't know. Fascinating, the wink. It's all yeah. It's that sort of like, it's all fun and games, isn't it? It's all right. It's all just fun yeah. and games. It's also it was such a casual. At the risk of overanalyzing, but that's what we're here for. It was such a casual wink. This the, he's clearly a, he is clearly a winker. Um, you know, the, which is a whole which is a whole conversation in itself, of course, because it's know, that sort of like winkers and some people aren't. Some people, yeah. Uh, I have a weird thing. If anyone winks on the TV or in a film, I automatically I can't watch the Dominic Raab thing. I automatically wink back. <laughs> I can't not. Uh, by the time I've realised, I, I don't do it. I've already done it. Um, uh, but there is something about James. There's something about Dominic Raab already, but particularly with the link as well. That sort of you know strong, strong air of sort of links Africa. Um, he's a. It, <laughs> That's exactly right. He's a sort of he's a sort of lad's lad, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I find him so weird, Dominic Raab, because he kind of. The way he looks with his kind of big sort of, you know, he looks very kind of chiseled. He looks like he could be a really powerful speaker. And then he's, I find him so sort of, sort of limp and uninspiring. I mean, my kind of, I don't know, when I was trying to analyse analyze the, the wink in my head, I was thinking, it's just, I don't know, he never kind of quite seems like he's on, on the front foot. And you know when you're sort of not really confident in conversation and then you find yourself doing slightly weird things and you're like, oh, why did I do that? And it's because you weren't really kind of like, feeling it and you weren't in the flow of things and my sort of thing was I mean I thought I thought Angela Rayner was um was brilliant yesterday and I was kind of I was wondering is it because she's sort of so confident so on the front foot that you kind of you end up like a bit sort of discomposed and sort of doing things that seem like a cool idea but it's actually you're like oh shit why did I wink and yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of wondering yeah. if she kind of got him off got him off his sort of you know got him off his front foot a little bit and he sort of you know uh sort of flailing a little bit in sort of weird ways in the way that you do when you feel awkward in conversation i don't know there is there is definitely he dominic Barb is definitely doing quite well i thought for, by his standards at pmqs and then he definitely sort of lost his you're right suddenly he he it's like i don't know if you're um you know running and then you suddenly realize your legs are going a bit too fast you don't really know what to do you know he, he looked like yes, someone exactly who, exactly yeah the 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 go-kart was suddenly out of control and he didn't really know what to do about it and then he seemed to stutter stutter a bit do you like being yeah. uh, india as a, as a woman do you like being winked at i don't i don't like being i'm pausing because actually winks almost always amuse me i mean i you know i sli- i always slightly want to laugh and i always feel quite well disposed even though i know i shouldn't i mean i think there's a context where a wink is arguably a tiny bit charming if you know the person strangers winking is a whole other thing but you know also this whole thing is like school isn't it i mean pmqs is like school anyway and there's dominic rob with his thick neck like a kind of jock i suppose who sits in one corner um, at lunch with the other sporty kids and there's Angela Rayner who's the naughtiest girl in school who might say anything at any time or do anything at any time and he sort of can't help himself I don't know I think it's fascinating the, the, the picture them all in school is definitely because like uh, Keir Starmer is such a nerd you know he's probably yeah had, Keir Starmer is a prefect he's got a he's briefcase notes. yeah he definitely takes a briefcase to school whereas Angela Rayner is just sort of <laughs> rampaging around the school at lunchtime you yeah. know the head of a big gang and it could yeah. kick off at any moment. Exactly. But she's also quite funny. But she's also quite yeah, funny, and the funny teachers can't sure. help liking her. That's the, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's very discombobulating to the likes of Dominic Raab. Well, I'm, glad we've, I'm, glad we've, 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 I'm glad we've workshop my column this week. That'll do. <gasps> yes, and my, yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad we sorted that out. Uh, uh, t- t- James, did you take a briefcase to school? Uh, no. I, I, do you know, I actually, I'm just, um, I still have. 
the rucksack that I that I that I had at school. Um, I consider it lucky. And um, well, it's because it's it's because you're only really beaten up. But it was only last year. <laughs> I think it's more than 15 years old. This rucksack. Wow. Um, yeah, it's very beaten up, and I still use it. See me very well. Did it have badges on it and stickers? No, I was never that kind of. I was never that kind of kid. I didn't have a strong enough. I don't know. I wasn't cool enough really for badges and stickers. So it's just not even a horrible beaten up green rucksack. Not even like a British Library badge sewn on. Well, like if that. they do, well, they don't do those, do they? <laughs> if they did, I'd have my penguin, my penguin sewn into my jacket and my British Library badge. And uh, you could, you should, you should start this match. I would, I would buy your nerd, your nerd um, apparel. Let's fire up the old GoDaddy website. We could start selling nerd, <laughs> nerd apparel. That's what we need to do. <laughs> I, could, okay. I, could, I could do the marketing for it. You could have me modelling it all on the website. Well, maybe this is what Keir Starmer needs. Never mind having a briefcase. Uh, it, when when uh, Peter Mandelson says voters have got no idea who Keir Starmer is, and he must define himself before it's too late. Uh, I mean, maybe the problem, maybe the problem that people do know what, mm. everything they need to know about, and there's just not very much there, James. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of, I sort of agree. I kind of agree with the analysis that you know Keir Starmer has to kind of just own the fact that everyone thinks he's kind of boring, and say. Well, in the context of everything that's happening with the government at the moment, isn't this kind of a positive? The whole trying to get him to make puns and jokes and PMQs, and I, I think that almost makes that almost makes him more nothingy because it's like, well, what are you? You're this really boring person. You're trying to tell you this funny person. I think just commit to boring, and that's I think that's his best. I think this is his best hope, isn't it? India. Yes, I think so. Um, I, I find the kind of jokes ex- excruciating because he doesn't sort of really have the delivery and they never sound spontaneous. And he is the kid who took his briefcase to school. And that is very readable, I think, to the public. You know, you take one look at him, you hear him open his mouth, which is a whole other question, and you know that he is solid and stolid and steady and boring and you move on and you look for somebody else who's more who, who has more interesting attributes um i i think he should have voice lessons i mean it worked for margaret thatcher i think the combination of the delivery the way he looks and the way he sounds suggests he's perhaps more boring than he actually is well that's the thing and actually it sounds like it's t- you know but to somebody i know right now someone has picked up their phone it's going to be a sentence message saying why do you focus on the substance and not just how someone speaks <laughs> me doing an impression of him of, uh, <laughs> of Keir Starmer. but this stuff matters you know this is we are in the 21st century communication through tv radio you know shareable f- videos on social media and all that that matters and if you're a lively engaging you know personality then you can engage people in the interesting plans you've got for the country. But if people Absolutely. think, oh, you need oh. to, you need to be a person who nobody wants to scroll past. You know, that's that's the thing. You need to kind of capture people's imagination immediately the minute you stand there, even possibly before you've opened your mouth, and then you can say all your stuff. But you need to grab them in the first instance, and I don't think he does. But I, I'm not saying he couldn't. But, but I, think, I, I think the bigger, I mean, the, we did this a couple of weeks ago on the show, but the uh, the bigger problem that Labour MPs have is not so much, you know, he's a bit dull, that's fine, but they don't really know what he's in it for. Like, he, yeah. he's dull and doesn't really have a plan to sell. Like, mm. if he was dull but with a very clear, you know, three clear messages and he just kept repeating them and yeah. people like the sound of it and all that's fine. But it's not really a big idea either. That's the... No. Whereas no. Boris Johnson is very lively. He doesn't really have a big plan either, other, other than remaining as Prime Minister. But, uh, you know, if you see him on the telly or a video pops up on social media, you'll probably watch it, even if it's mm. just, you know, 
Because he might yeah. have said something entertaining or, or otherwise. I think that's exactly true. And I, I was thinking this watching Angela Rayner at PMQs yesterday, and I was kind of thinking at the end of it, how much of substance did she actually really say? But then also how much, do, you know, it probably wasn't the most kind of, you know, substantial, you know, questions and sort of answers she was giving. But I think just because of her sort of charisma, it kind of, it kind of filled it, it kind of filled in for that. I mean, I guess ideally you have both, but I think, as you say, those two qualities can kind of balance each other out a bit. And there has to be some kind of passion, as you say, whether it comes from policy or whether it just seems you've got this kind of personal, you know, passion and charisma. Uh, just finally then, James, talking, talking of passion and charisma, that's what I always think of when I see your column. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dead subjects, because you've written about this, this story. This is one of these classic, like, uh, small stories which then has legs, because everyone's got a view on it. The fact that our, uh, is it Sheffield Hallam University's dropped English lit. Uh, and you think it could go the same way as Latin and theology? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's doomed, which, which makes me really sad because I actually have um, one, of the, one of the less clever decisions of my life. I have not one but two English literature degrees. So I've been doing my part to, um, to, keep, up, <laughs> to keep up the study of English literature, single-handedly trying to hold the subject up. What did um, you, James, what did you get from the second one that you felt you, you missed out from on the first one? Literally, literally nothing. It was a it was a major life error. I took out a ten thousand pound loan from the government to do it and moved into my grandma's spare bedroom for two years. And do do not recommend the second English literature degree. Um, <laughs> it was very much like the first. But did you feel did you feel intellectually nourished and sustained in a way that you wouldn't otherwise? While uh, you were doing it, no, I, I felt very mm. felt very depressed at living in my grandma's spare bedroom. The first one was good. Um, yeah, I'm not really defending English literature very well here. One English literature degree, I think, is a good thing, and people should do them. But two, you know, might be time to draw the line. Have a quiet word with anyone you know who's doing two English literature degrees. Do we need to worry about this? This India, if people have stopped, you know, people. Presumably, the reason that Sheffield Adam have dropped it is people have stopped uh, wanting to do it. And if they, you know, other things come along, that's all right, isn't it? No, I think it's really sad. My favourite people are people with English degrees. Um, I think I I like all the subjects that are completely unfashionable. I like English. I like classics. I like languages. I like history of art. I like you know, and all of the other ones. I find I don't know. I think I think that you know when you're in your late teens, you have this kind of magic window when you can spend three years, four if you're in Scotland, devoting yourself dedicating yourself to something that just really makes your spirit fly and your heart sing and doing nothing but learning about that thing. And the idea that these kind of, I suppose, quite romantic, but 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 also kind of really important, you know, you learn stuff that stays with you for the rest of your life. The idea that these sorts of degrees are, that are creative and imaginative and all of the rest of it are being displaced for the sorts of degrees that are more likely to kind of send you straight into work is the same, I think. I mean, obviously, I understand people, it's, you know, it's good to go straight into work. It's what you want to do. But but I think taking away that sort of end bit of education and turning it into really the waiting room for your whole next 40 years of working life is a bit demoralising. I think it's a real shame. And actually, there's a good argument of saying if that's if you're getting into work is the thing you already focus on, just go into work. Get into work. Go to work. Exactly. Then do a degree. Go straight to work. It works for. Or do a vocational people. thing or whatever. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad we sorted all that out. I mean, the main thing. Never mind. The main thing is we're going to launch a, a, a range of nerd fashion. 
Um, Tom Waits. Yeah, and James is going to model it. Perfect. I look forward I'm to that. Buy it. I love the sound of the nerd. Guaranteed profits. Yeah, sort of cardigans with books sewn into the pockets. There's definitely <laughs> oh. a market for that. Although then, how do you read the books? That's the only thing that we're not going to read them. You know, because you've already read them. You've read all the books on your oh, two English yes, literature yes, degrees. Yes, that's true. It's entirely okay, it makes proposing. perfect sense. It's just supposing. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Good. We'll get that. The, the, yeah. Booksinyourpockets.com. Here we go. India Knight and James Merrick there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesfedbox. Up next is 50 Years of Pride. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. Fifty years ago this week, gay rights activists took to the streets of London to protest at bru- police brutality at the Stonewall Inn in New York and the riots that followed there. And then on the 1st of July, 1972, the Gay Liberation Front led the first Pride rally in the UK. It's a show of defiance and celebration which continues today, 50 years ago, tomorrow. Uh, Now, a report from the Times back then was headlined, Homosexuals Demonstrate for Equal Rights. It said the Gay Liberation Front was campaigning so that homosexuals should be allowed to kiss and hold hands in public, just as heterosexuals are. That all discrimination against gay people, male and female, by the law, by employers and by society at large, should end. While there's been a lot of progress, there's still a lot uh, further to go. Well, someone who was there at the first Pride rally helped to organise it and still goes every year. He's the gay rights advocate and campaigner, Peter Tatchell. So I caught up with him to ask about his memories of how it all happened. And he started off by telling me exactly what happened at those Stonewall riots in New York and how that sparked half a century of protests. The Stonewall riots took place at the Stonewall Bar in New York in late June 1969. They were a reaction to decades of police harassment. On this particular night, when the police came by to bully the gay customers, they fought back. Indeed, there were three nights of rioting against the way in which the police were corrupt and were harassing LGBT plus people. And those riots really were the incident that kickstarted the modern LGBT plus movement. As a result of those riots and the arrests that took place, the LGBT plus community in New York got organized. And very soon afterwards, we saw the birth of the Gay Liberation Front in New York. And then how did that reach you in London? I never heard about the Stonewall riots, but I did hear about the protest a few weeks later, organized by the Gay Liberation Front in New York. That inspired me and many others to come together and the result was the formation of the Gay Liberation Front in London. Although we took the name from the New York organisation, we were our own unique creation. You know, we, we, we were inspired by them, but we were very much rooted in the British LGBT plus community and our history and culture. Just describe for me what what life was like in 1970 in London, being gay. In 1970, or 
1970, what it was like at that point when you're... And we'll get to 1972 when they had the first march, but just saying, well, actually, we, we formed our own Gay Liberation Front. I mean, what was that like? Was that a frightening thing to do, an intimidating thing to do, a courageous thing to do? What was... Paint a picture for people who don't know what it was like in the night in the turn of the night of the seventies. What was it like to be young and gay in in 1970? Back then, uh, although there had been a partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales in 1967, it was very limited. Most aspects of gay male life still remained criminalised. So I, as a teenage gay man in London was committing a criminal act if I had consenting sex with another, man, with another man because I was under the lawful age of consent of 21. So it was okay for heterosexual couples to have sex from the age of 16, but for gay and bisexual men, we were expected to wait until we were 21. And if we did have sex before that age, we could be put in a young offenders institution for two years. Also in that era, there were no positive role models uh, for gay people. The only images were of ultra camp comedians like Larry Grayson and John Inman. What a gay day. <laughs> I feel all worn out, you know, before it starts, really. Actually, what happened today? I was at home, you see, and I was doing my hair and, you know, messing around, and a note came under the bottom of the door. I thought, hello. I thought, it's the vicar wanted me to join the choir again. So. <laughs> The only time a gay person would be mentioned in the news is if they're exposed as a child molester, a spy or a serial killer. Um, the medical and psychiatric professions designated homosexuality as an illness, and they were still practicing electric shock aversion therapy in those days to try and cure homosexuality. Um, in schools, LGBT plus kids got no support there was virtually no um, action against bullying of, of LGBT plus pupils and gay teachers were often sacked. They were deemed to be a threat and a danger to children. Um, of course, there was no legal recognition for same sex partners. So if your partner died, you had no next of kin rights, no right to inherit the property you shared and built together. Um, it was very, very grim. People mistakenly think that homosexuality was legalized in 1967. It wasn't. That was a very partial, limited decriminalization. And in the years afterwards, the police harassment intensified and the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting behavior increased by over 400%. When I arrived in London in 1971, age 19, I joined the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. And then tell me about then, against that backdrop of everything, the, the pitch that you paint, going from jo joining the Gay Liberation Front is one thing, taking part in a march was a very visible thing to do. How did that come about? What was the the, the thinking behind organising that first Pride March uh, and how you felt when the march set off on that, that, that first Saturday in July 1972. I was one of about 30 or 40 people in the Gay Liberation Front who organised Britain's first ever Gay Pride Parade 
which took place on the 1st of July, 1972. We came up with the idea of gay pride to counter the prevailing consensus that we should be ashamed of who we are. And that was a huge gamble because back then, most LGBT plus people were in the closet. They would not dare show their faces in public because they feared arrest, being beaten up by queer bashers, uh, losing their jobs, uh, being evicted from their homes by homophobic landlords. So when we decided to hold this first ever Pride Parade, we had no idea how many people would turn out. In the end, about 700 people showed up. And we were delighted. We were delighted. Um, but we were very heavily policed. This is just a very leisurely, peaceful, carnival-style parade through the streets. We were not threatening anybody, but the police you know, had, had very large numbers on the protest march and some of the officers were openly homophobic you know they would abuse us as puffs queers uh, faggots lezzies dykes um not all officers did that but some did and of course back then there was no police complaints procedure <laughs> they could get away with it uh, but we were nevertheless we, we were defiant we were determined to make our mark i want to break free That first pride was about showing that we are proud of who we are, but also about queer visibility, you know, staking our claim on the public space um, and celebrating our culture, our lives, but also very much a protest. We were very much committed to the idea that this pride was not just a party or a celebration, which it was in part, but also a protest for our human rights. The march went from Trafalgar Square via Charing Cross Road and Oxford Street to Hyde Park, where we held a gay day. A gay day was a, a queer picnic. Everybody bought food, drink, dope and music. We had a great fun time. Um, I remember the police lining up on the side of the park with their arms folded, glowering. Uh, they particularly hated it. We, we, we played various party games like spin the bottle. So there's lots of same-sex kissing, which in those days was, you know, you could be arrested for kissing a person of the same sex. Uh, but the police, given our numbers, the police did not dare to arrest us. But we were, we were certainly nervous. We, we, were, we were nervous. Um, we, we, we feared that they might arrest us. En route... The reaction from members of the public on the pavement was very interesting. I would say about a third were hostile, some even abusive. About a third just gawked in disbelief that gay people would dare show their faces. And about a third were, to varying degrees, supportive. You know, a few even clapped and cheered. So that gave us confidence. We thought, wow, a third of the public is more or less on our side. That's a good starting point. And because the whole event was a great success, 
that emboldened us to repeat Pride the next year, the year after, and the year after. Marching in that first Pride was exciting, daring, and indeed quite nerve-wracking. We didn't know whether we were going to be arrested or queer-bashed. You know, we, we were hoping for the best. But every step of the way, we were, we were looking over our shoulder, looking at the public reactions, um, but very much determined to carry on regardless. Talk me through then, like the last, the, a, a potted history of the last 50 years, if you like. Like you said, it, it's happened again and again. The highs and lows, the good times, the bad times. And and because I suppose when you did it the first time, you didn't think, oh, I wonder if we'll still be doing this in 50 years' time. But but do you, how do you feel now, looking back over that 50 years? And has it achieved what the young, idealistic Peter Tatchell wanted to achieve 50 years ago? For the first few years, Pride remained quite small, only about two or 3,000 people. By the mid-1980s, it had increased to 15,000. Then in 1988, the Conservative government enacted Section 28, the first new anti-gay law in Britain for a century. It prohibited the so-called promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. But it's the plight of individual boys and girls which worries me most. Too often, our children don't get the education they need, the education they deserve. And in the inner cities, where youngsters must have a decent education if they are to have a better future, that opportunity is all too often snatched from them by hard left education authorities and extremist teachers. Children who need to be able to express themselves in clear English are being taught political slogans. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Well, that was a red rag. <laughs> Overnight, uh, the numbers on the Pride Parade doubled to 30,000 in 1988. And then each year afterwards increased exponentially. So that by 1997, there were 100,000 people in the Pride Parade. It took five or six hours to pass a single point. And at the post-March festival on Clapham Common, there were nearly 300,000 people. Sadly, because Pride had become so, so huge, much bigger than the organisers expected, they lost some money in 1997. And this led to uh, a group of gay businessmen stepping in to take it over and to rebrand it as Mardi Gras, for the first time making people pay to go to the post-March festival. That really alienated a lot of people. So the numbers fell very dramatically both on the march and at the festival. 
Uh, about a decade ago, the organization of Pride was taken over by a community interest company, basically a, a private company, a group of individuals who tendered to the mayor of London and got the contract. But they are not democratically elected by the community. And uh, there is a lot of anxiety about the way in which Pride now is very corporate, very commercial, and mostly very apolitical. So in recent years, LGBT plus human rights demands have barely figured in the parade. Um, and that's been a conscious choice by the organizers. They've also limited the number of marches under pressure from Westminster City Council to a mere 30,000 people. 30,000 in one of the biggest, gayest cities in the world. That makes Pride London one of the smallest pride parades of any Western capital city, including the capitals of some very small countries. It's utterly shameful that Westminster Council has imposed this artificial cap on the numbers who can participate, which means that every year, tens of thousands of LGBT plus people and our straight friends and allies are turned away. They're not allowed to march. That is completely against the roots of pride, which is always meant to be open to everyone. I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned the sort of commercialisation of it. One of the things that you sort of see around, particularly around London, when in sort of in the run-up to Pride, sort of every, suddenly every bank and building society and coffee shop has changed their logo to a rainbow flag. I mean, to some extent, that's a sign, I suppose, that society's moved on. But is there a sort of, I don't know if rainbow washing is the right word, but a sort of slight sense of companies without maybe the greatest record of where they operate or the people that they employ um, uh, change their logo for a week as a sign of, oh, we've done our bit. There is a concern that some of the companies are using rainbow branding as a way of selling their product, that they're using it as a marketing exercise to win over pink consumers. I just want to ask you as well about um, trans rights, which has become such a political football. Actually, lots of people who aren't trans arguing about something constantly very angrily on social media and so on. How does that make you feel does it remind you of what it was like to be gay in the early 70s and this you know the trans community is now going through similar battles is it better or worse than that what's your your take on the, that political discourse much of the hostility and arguments against trans people today echoes the kinds of things that were said against lesbian and gay people 30 or 40 years ago trans women are being demonized as a threat to other women when in fact, like other women, they also suffer from misogyny, discrimination, rape and hate crime. Just finally then, what do you hope Pride might look like in another 50 years' time? Do, we, is it, do you sort of almost hope it doesn't exist because gay rights is seen as such a, you know, everyone's achieved equality? What's the, what's the, what would be the long-term hope looking? A young, the young aspirational Peter Tatchells of today, what does, what does life look like in 50 years' time? We still need pride today because there are still some LGBT plus people in this country who have internalized homophobia, biophobia and transphobia. 
they don't feel good about themselves. They do feel ashamed. So reasserting pride in who we are is still important. Plus there are issues like the ban on conversion therapy, reform of the Gender Recognition Act, a better deal for LGBT plus refugees fleeing persecution. These are still ongoing issues. And of course, internationally, the battle is still, still so far to go. Um, there are 69 countries that continue to criminalize same-sex relations. Some have life imprisonment. A handful, 12 Muslim-majority countries, still have the death penalty. Um, so, you know, the battle for LGBT plus rights on a global scale is still far from won. But my ultimate hope is that one day pride will be unnecessary that it will become redundant because the acceptance and equal rights for LGBT plus people will be the norm. My first pride, I was one of about 30 people from the Gay Liberation Front who helped organize Britain's first ever pride parade, which took place on the 1st of July, 1972. I had no idea that Pride would still be continuing 50 years later. And I'm very proud to say that I've been on every single Pride parade since 1972. I now even rearrange my holidays to make sure I'm here for it. To me, it's a really important, significant event. It was then, and it still is now. We have to keep marching with Pride until every LGBT plus person on this planet is free and equal. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. 